We're going to continue in John. As a matter of fact, we're going to start over in John. Go back to John 1, if you will. And this morning, we're talking about the purpose of purpose. Now, Pastor Jeremy, how does that relate to Christmas? The purpose of purpose. I don't know. It just sounded very philosophical, and I felt the need to sound pseudo-intelligent, so there you go. It's my best imitation of Sartre, or Socrates, as they say. How many of you have one of these? This is a what? And it, you buy it for the purpose of what? Why do I buy it? To be connected. To play Candy Crush. <laughs> oh, Lord, help me in my Candy Crush efforts. You know, my phone isn't led by the Spirit. I don't know if yours is, but mine is not. Mine has a different spirit in it, one named Beelzebub. And, uh... It has gotten so bad, it shuts off by itself about eight times a day. I don't know, maybe that isn't interceding by the Spirit. Who knows? But it just randomly is shutting off all the time, and I'll get messages about five days later now. So I apologize. At this point, folks, just email me. Until the second week of January when I get my... Thank you. Uh, you're just going to have to email me. There is no dependability. Call me at home. Call me at the office. You can try. Pray before you do that it actually gets through. Because it is just, last night, it was a miracle that we were able to find each other in the city uh, as I was driving all over the place trying to find uh, places uh, to park. Uh, but, you know, Janine got an upgrade recently. And it's been so interesting and so fun and so exciting. Oh, yes, it is. So, you know, she now can do email. She can communicate with her sewing business on her phone. She now can text. She's a texting wizard. She's burning her fingernail off right here on this finger. She can deposit her checks. Isn't that amazing? She can, she can take a picture of her checks and deposit it rather than drive and have to, you know, stand in the line. Isn't that amazing? What a great application. She can do her banking on, she can count her calories, not that you need to, but she could. Her dad counts his calories on his phone. And he's, every time we go out to dinner over Thanksgiving, he was like punching it in. And then, you know, if he did okay, he'd just sit there with a little smile on his face. And, and if he didn't do okay, I can't repeat what he said. <laughs> she can buy movie tickets ahead of time and just go straight in with, with this phone. With this phone. You know, when you get your phone, do you ever find out, or do you ever find yourself saying, when you open it up, yeah, but what does it do? But what does it do? And instantly, or actually a few years ago, we would say, well, what? it makes calls, right? Hmm, we've changed now, haven't we? When we get our phones, we say, yeah, but... Does it do this? Does it do that? Does it? But what does it do? Some other things that Janine could do with her phone, not my phone, but her phone. 
she could see uh, where I'm staying halfway around the world on missions trips. She could track me. That's all that we need to say about that. <laughs> we can watch TVs on our smartphone. We can watch TV shows on our smartphones now. We can get the weather. I've never understood How many of you guys have a weather app on your phone? Um, can I just recommend, just open the door. Okay? It's not going to change. Now, when they get that app that you can change the weather, now we're talking. But um, it doesn't do that yet. But just open your door. You'll know what the weather is. Uh, you know, you can actually use your phone as a remote control for your TV. You could do that. That is amazing, especially when you have small children and your remotes disappear. Or a dog chews on it. Or who knows? Uh, you know you can turn off your appliances when you're somewhere else, right? You seen that commercial on TV? The kids show up, up in the cabin, and the parents are on the porch. You stop by the house, and he just instantly goes to his phone, and he's checking, and everything is still on, right? And he just starts shutting things off. Who knew it would do that? Who knew it would do that? You can listen to music on your phone. You can listen to, my wife could listen to my magnificent speaking voice from every Sunday if she so chooses. But she hears it all week long. Anyway, you can read your Bible. You can speak face-to-face -face someone with someone halfway around the world and tell them about Christ. Isn't that amazing? In real time, face-to-face, -face, anywhere in the world that has a Wi-Fi connection. You could also waste half a day posting pictures, right? Janine could waste half her day posting pictures of our giant Christmas tree on Facebook. Oh, yeah. She could also make a phone call. When we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Jesus coming to earth, being born in humble circumstances, in a supernatural and unpredictable fashion, given glory by celestial beings and travelers from afar, hunted to be killed by an earthly king, protected by heavenly messengers and messages sent through dreams. Sounds like a Hallmark after school special, doesn't it? It's an incredible story. But you know, sometimes we miss what we're supposed to glean from this story. And we're going to dive into that this morning. Take all those bullet points of the Christmas story and sum them up. A five-year-old can repeat those events back to you, can't they? You know, next week we're going to have the kids come up here and we're going to have this great, almost like a Narnia telling of the, of the Christmas story. And then those that can repeat back things that they've heard in the story will get prizes, much like how I treat you. No, they'll get prizes. I don't know what we're going to be giving out. Um, maybe it'll be iPads. Who knows? Uh, or smartphones. But, you know, even a five-year-old can tell you the details of the Christmas story. That's not too hard for us as adults, is it? But I think we're missing something. I think we're missing something here. This morning, if I were to ask you, what is the purpose of Christmas? You might be able to tell me. But what if I asked you what the purpose of the purpose of Christmas is? You might offer me the red pill or the blue pill or send me a picture of Sartre or Socrates. You might wonder, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let me explain it to you. Christmas is so much more 
than just the narrative. And it starts with the incarnation. I'll explain the incarnation in a moment. But for what purpose are we really understanding all that Christmas brings? Are we ready to have the proverbial, oh, it does that too, moment? This morning you're going to be challenged to reinvest yourself into the purpose of Christmas. In order to do that, we need to start at the beginning. So let's do likewise, and let's go back to where we started almost a year ago in John 1.1. And so this morning as we do so, I've got the scripture up on the screen. This is our main text. We'll be in a lot of scripture this morning, but this is our main text. And you'll notice that I jump. We're talking about 1 through 14. We'll hit some of the other passages in the middle, but right now I'm going to bookend it. And verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning, let me give you some definition of the Incarnation. The incarnation or the union of the infinite divinity and finite humanity in one person is indeed a mystery that we can't explain. And so here's a a, a workable definition, if you will. Incarnation is from the Latin word incarnatio, and it means being or taking flesh. And while this is a biblical idea, it's not a biblical term. You're not going to find this in the Greek or in the Hebrew or or some guy walking through the mall speaking Aramaic. He's not going to know it. And if you find that person, you call me on my smartphone. It's Christian use derives from the Latin version of John 1.14, which we just read, and appears repeatedly in Latin Christian authors from about A.D. 300 onward. Now, when we talk about the incarnation of Christ, it means that he took on flesh. It's out of verse 14. What's the big deal? We've been hearing this story for years. We've actually heard this story for millennia through the history of mankind since it happened. So what's the big deal? It's it's a wonderfully endearing story. Actually, it's very supernatural. We get that. God became man. And, And I kind of accept that, or actually I fully accept that. But what's the big deal? Well, let me help you understand what we're really talking about here for a moment. When we say that Christ took on flesh, we mean that he became human. That God became human. Pause for a moment and think about this. That when I think about God, I need God to be God. Have you ever met somebody? Like I said yesterday, you know, we had secret service all around us. And we were thinking, oh my goodness, who... Uh, who is it that, that's coming or going or, or, or whatever's happening? Have you ever met someone famous? And, and then you're trying to tell people that you met someone famous? And they're, no, you didn't. You didn't meet that person. And one of the reasons that that's problematic is because it's really hard for us to take the common and link it with the uncommon, isn't it? You see, I need God to be God. Don't you? And if I think of God as human, I've just now taken the uncommon and made it common. Are we getting there yet? Did you get a chill? I hope so. Because the mystery of this and the magnitude of this 
is one of the most unparalleled, misunderstood aspects of God's love for us. We need to grasp what this really means. What is the purpose of God becoming human? I mean, truly human. Let me convince you, shall I? From Scripture, not from myself, but from Scripture. How about this? He grew and developed along the lines of a normal human development. Luke 2, 40. He grew in nature and stature and wisdom is what it says. During his earthly ministry, here's some of the things that describe Jesus' humanity. He displayed common physiological needs. He experienced fatigue. John 4, 6. Talks about it with the woman at the well. His body required sleep. Matthew 8, 24, he's on the boat and he's sleeping in the back, even in the midst of the storm. Jesus got tired. I was so tired last night. My poor son, we were out shopping and he wanted to go get something for somebody, his uncle. And, uh, and so he walked to the store because he wasn't into going into Forever 21 and Ross and all those things. And so he decided, I'm just going to walk. He didn't realize that he was going to walk six miles in about 48 degree weather. And by the time I got a hold of him, he had gotten to his destination. He was exhausted and he took a taxi back. He was so tired. And then the taxi dropped him off at the wrong spot and he started doing circles. Yeah, that's my son, just like his old man. Started doing circles trying to fit. And by the time I was talking him down to where we were, he was so frustrated and he was tired. He was worn out. We can relate to that, can't we? But I cannot relate to Jesus getting tired. God got tired? God got tired. He required food. Matthew 4, 2. And water. John 19, 28. He had human emotional characteristics accompanied with physical ones. Jesus expressed joy in John 15 where he talks and we're going to hear about this coming up, about his relationship with the Father and his love for the disciples. He talked about sorrow when he thinks about the future of Israel out of Matthew 26. He showed compassion towards those that needed healing, and he reached out in compassion out of Matthew 9. And he talks about love in John 11 and his love and affection for his disciples and for the world. He was moved to righteous indignation in Mark 3, 5, and in the story of the cleansing of the temple. We see human emotions. And maybe what we see here is that in the incarnation, we see the characteristics because we'll see in Genesis 1 here in a moment, Genesis 1, 26, in creation, God says, let us make man in our what? In our image. And I think there's an aspect, my friends, where our personality and how we function and our soul and our thinking, our perspective, our emotive process, our love, our heart, that that in fact mirrors who God is rather than Christ becoming like man, that he mirrored who we are. Jesus in his humanity. Jesus referred to himself as a man in John 8.40. And you can go on and on and on. Peter at the day of Pentecost said these words, A man approved of God among you in Acts 2. Jesus, God, became man. But for what purpose? 
Let's look at it this morning, shall we? And this morning, as we dive into this, we're going to start with John 1. And we're going to look at the significance of this with Jesus becoming man. So in the beginning, it's speaking about the pre-incarnate Christ. It goes before the beginning of the creation. What is inferred by John here is eternality. What he's speaking about is not necessarily the beginning as we think of in the times uh, uh, continuum, but in the sense of before man was here, I am. Before man existed, before your cognitive thought, Jesus existed. His description here is not as Jesus. Have you ever thought of that? That prior to the incarnation, was he ever referred to as Jesus? No. You see, Gabriel told them, told Mary, told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, which we learned, I believe, last week, that this is a process of naming in, in a typology after Joshua. It means he will save his people. Do you realize that the name of Jesus is given to the second person of the Godhead for your benefit and for mine? It is a message, it is a title so that you and I can understand why the incarnation happened. I don't know that God refers to the second part of the Trinity as Jesus when they're communicating with each other. That's something I learned and, and thought about. That his thought for you and I in how to relate to the humanness of God was to give a name that formerly he didn't go by. Fascinating. In the beginning. He may not have even functioned as the second part of the Trinity. All we know is that he was part of the Godhead. All we know is that the preeminent Christ is God. And he had a role as God. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Let's look at it. In the beginning, well, let's see what we can see about who Christ is or was. <clears throat> And this is a prolific passage on who Christ is. It was written for the benefit of the believers who were hearing heresy given about who Jesus Christ was being perceived as. And we'll start in verse 15 and go through 20. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. Does this sound familiar? Genesis 1.26. Let us make men in our image. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By the way, these statements are for our benefit. God does not need to describe Jesus in this fashion in any other uh, way other than for us to be able to relate to Jesus. Before the creation happened, he was not the firstborn of all creation. Creation happened, and this gives him the title as the firstborn of creation. For by him all things were created, speaks to his divinity, in heaven and on earth. So Christ created all things 
in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He sustains everything. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the, from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Something fascinating that is in these words, in this passage, that Paul is trying to refer to us, is that he's speaking to Christ's divinity, not his humanity. The ironic part about it is, is none of this needs to happen if it weren't for who we are. All of these descriptors of Jesus Christ are there so that we can understand and relate in our finite minds to the infinite. All of these descriptors are here because of the, the span of reconciliation and redemption of men. You see, the creation happened because God desired to have relationship with men. Why? I don't know. But he did. And so, this part of God, the incarnation, reveals himself for these specific purposes at this point in time in the history of the timeline of all things that God does for these purposes right now. What we just read was purposeful for the redemption of mankind in the beginning. And then Genesis 1.26, he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. There is a unique relationship between who we are and who God is. We don't have the specifics to it. But we know that that divine spark is within mankind. We know that we are uniquely set apart from all other creation. And so Jesus did not come in the form of an animal. He did not come in the form of a smartphone. He did not come in the form of all these other things that so many other religions worship as that which can have power in their life. He came as a what? A child. He came in the flesh. There's something unique in our relationship with God that we are made in His image. And so Jesus came in the beginning. He was the Word. The Logos. The Logos is this Greek word. And this is a little bit hard. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here because we did back when we first started on this. But it needs addressing. It is the essence of collective thought about an individual, the Greeks would say. It is a Greek word, and so when they use this word, it was this part of when you look at Pastor Jeremy and you think of Pastor Jeremy, you think of the things that he talks about, that he's passionate about, his communication style, the things that he hates, the things that he loves, his faults, his praises, his praises. Anyway. His horrible sense of humor. You think of those things, and that is my essence. That helps you start to translate what this word, the logos, means. The word. It was all that God is in thought and, and in concept and in principle, and it is embodied into a person, the person of Jesus Christ. 
His words were the very words of God. This is why Jews uh, had a big problem with Jesus. Is that they didn't like new revelation. They didn't like someone equating themselves with God. He is the embodiment of the collective thought and purpose of God himself. Next was with God. It's intimacy with the Father. The person of Jesus Christ shared in life with the Father. We're going to see a big part of this when we hit John 17. When you think about what we've heard so far coming through John, Jesus is always, during his ministry and probably before, Jesus is always speaking to his relationship with the Father. That he shares life with the Father. There's an intimacy of being with God. We just heard him speak to Judas. We just heard him speak to Thomas, and not Iscariot, but the other Judas, and saying, if you had seen me, you've seen uh, the Father. How can you not know the Father if you've been around me? It speaks to an intimacy. The Word was with God. It speaks of his eternality as well. That Jesus has always been with God. He was God. He is divine. There is one God, we know that, according to Scripture. It's this concept of monotheism. Jesus claims to be God. John gives testimony to it in this statement in John 1.1, and that Jesus shares in the Godhead. He is part of God. There's no differentiation between the Father and the Son pre-incarnation. Now, I'm not going to dive too far into that, and I don't know that biblical text tells you exactly those things. But I will simply say that how we relate to Jesus Christ is specific to how Jesus chose to relate to us now at this time, at this dispensation. I don't know that he functioned in the same capacity pre-creation. Because I don't know that he had the need to. The capa- uh, not the capacity, but the need and, and the, the, uh, the purposefulness to function in the role that he functions now. A good way to look at the Trinity is that there are roles. There's not a hierarchy. There are simply roles. All right? And his role was to redeem mankind at that point in time and actively now. He is divine. Lastly, the Word became flesh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That which is the Creator became the created. It's a mind blower. You'll notice that I put question marks at the end of each of these statements. This is hard to focus on. He who was the creator became the created. It's a mystery. It's an enigma. But what was the purpose behind it? That idea, when there is such a mystery, it should drive us to say, why does it matter? Look, my phone does Candy Crush. Why does it matter? Because my life wouldn't... No, I have no idea. I have not yet succumbed to Candy Crush. Thank you. Amen. Anyway, and for those of you that are, we'll talk about repentance later. Insertion of God into humanity. Why would God do this? Making the uncommon common. Let's look at Philippians 2, 4 through 11. We were there earlier. This was our main text to start today. And when we ask this question, insertion of God into humanity, making the uncommon common, The idea here is that you're going to hear about him emptying himself. That he actively chose to set aside that part of him which was God. Why did he do that? He did it as an example for you and I. 
He did it as an example for you and I, and that's hidden here in this passage. Let's start in verse 4. It says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in form of God, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So this passage tells us that he actively chose, he willingly chose to empty himself. This word, we get the word metamorphosis from, it's morphe, it's to change, it's to make a decision to change oneself. Now was he no longer God while he was here? No. Just like I can choose at certain points of time to take the dad hat off as I'm coaching my daughter in soccer... I can take that dad hat off, set it aside, and just be coach because that's my role right then. Does that make sense? I'm still her dad. Right? I'm still your dad. Jesus emptied himself. The kenosis. Why is this important? What is the purpose behind this? Because can you imagine God actively choosing to Stop being God. To insert himself into that which needed to be saved and become common. He who was uncommon, become common. How many of us are willing to do that? You see, what's really going on here is the perfect plan. Have you ever been in a situation where much was demanded of you and you were never trained? And you took some major heat over it. You were constantly getting criticized because you just weren't getting it done. And you kept in your frustrated sense of understanding, saying, this isn't fair, I've not been trained in how to do this. How would we have one iota of understanding how to live a godly life if we didn't have the example of Jesus Christ? God could have made a way, He could have made a way to redeem mankind that did not require himself to insert part of himself into creation. He chose to do it. There has to be a purpose behind that. And we're getting to that purpose. He was the Word. He was, He is God. And He made Himself flesh. This is disturbing to me. I need God to be uncommon. Not common. Well, let's look at some things that help us understand this. The purpose of the incarnation. What was it? The child would redeem mankind. The child would redeem mankind. Turn back to John 1, if you will. We're going to hit some of those verses in between that I said we would revisit. Here's the fascinating part about the purpose of the incarnation. Why God would insert himself into his creation. And I believe this is, without a doubt, the number one purpose. Actually, I'm going to back it up to verse 11. It says, um, 
I'm going to back it up to verse 9 now. I love the whole thing. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Have you ever experienced that? Rejection? Then you've experienced what Christ experienced. And any time you feel the suffering of rejection, especially when you've laid out your life for it, you begin to taste what God actively chose to participate in. What is the purpose of the incarnation? Hebrews 4 tells us it's this. So that as I'm suffering, as I'm hurting, as I'm starting to get angry, as I'm starting to question and doubt things because of the circumstances around me, I can stop and I can pause and I can say, God put himself into this. And he gets it. It says that in every way that I suffer, he suffers. In every way that I am tempted, he was tempted. And it says that he what? He overcame. He was perfect. Why did he choose to insert himself into humanity? One of the reasons is what we heard out of Philippians 2. It's the redemption of mankind, as we're hearing here. And even his own rejected him. And yet he still gave. He still loved. There are two things that I can do with that. Number one, I can, well, there's a lot of things I can do with it, but I'm going to give you two. One is I can receive it and enjoy the love and the sacrifice that Christ has made for me. Number two, I can turn around and demonstrate to those around me that same sacrifice, which we're going to find out is the purpose of the purpose. What's the purpose of the incarnation? It was that in the midst of suffering, it was in the midst of inserting himself into mankind, in the midst of becoming relational, he would suffer and die so that you and I may experience salvation and be redeemed. That's the first purpose of the incarnation. The child was God revealing himself to man for relationship. John 14, 18 through 23. We can turn there and look real briefly. We were just here last week. And starting in verse 18, let's look at it. it. says, I, and this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Do you see the relationship? Jesus came to have that relationship with man. Jesus came, the incarnation showed up, so that the Father would be in Him, He would be in the Father, they would then, what? Make their home in our hearts. To have relationship with man. How do I know that? Keep reading. It says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, 
He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. The incarnation happened for relationship. That is so uncommon in my mind that the purpose fits in the span of relationship with us. Thirdly, the child would demonstrate, that should say an example. See, I need a savior of my grammar. The child would demonstrate an example. 1 John 2.6, and I'll just tell you what it says. If anyone wants to abide in me, and that's going to be our theme this coming year. If anyone wants to abide in me, he was he in him, sorry. If anyone chooses to abide in him, he must walk as Jesus walked. How can I know how Jesus walked or how God would choose to walk on earth to give me an actual demonstration unless he came and showed up? That's one of the reasons the incarnation happened. That is one of the purposes for the incarnation. is so that we would know how to walk. So number one, it's for our redemption of mankind. Number two, it is for relationship with God. Number three, it is so that we can know how to walk. I challenge you, go through the book of Ephesians and find out where you see the word walk. And look at all the scripture that speaks to that. It will give you a great plan as to how you can abide in Christ. And how this fits with the incarnation. And how it is purposeful. So what is the purpose of the purpose of the incarnation. Since we've answered the question what the purpose of the incarnation is, now let's get to what I challenged you with this morning. The purpose of the purpose. Now, this has evolved in my life from just being a phone. Actually, it stinks as a phone. Okay? But we'll have to live with it for a while. It now has become an information hub. It now helps me understand anytime that I want, I can reference Scripture. Anytime I want, I can have a conversation with someone that I need to, as long as they pick up on the other end. And if they don't pick up, I can text them and I can leave a message. I can do my banking. You heard the list, right? Now the purpose of this purpose is to change my life. And if you don't think that the telecom companies don't know that, you're getting suckered. I dare you to go watch football today. Some of you, that will not be a dare. But I dare you to count how many times you see a commercial for what a phone can do in your life. I challenge you to go out and look at the restaurants as you're waiting to be seated and see the social dynamic that happens now in the waiting rooms of Chili's. That'd be it. 
And if I want to say something to the person next to me, I don't want to risk getting a stabbing sharp pain in my neck by turning this way and using this thing here. I'll just, because this is so programmed now. The purpose of the purpose is for you to keep pounding data so people can make what? Money. Can you imagine the first conversation about cell phones? We're going to spend $48 billion to launch a satellite that will help you speak on a phone. What? I can speak on a phone right now to anybody I want to. Oh, no, this will be much better. Can you imagine the companies that said no? You see, there was a purpose behind the purpose. And so as we look at the incarnation today, is there a purpose behind the purpose? This thing's driving me nuts. I used to put my hand in my pocket, and I've got this big telecom thing stuck to my waist. Sorry, folks, we had a, we had a purposeful blowout of the previous... Uh, uh, microphone transponder, and so we had to change up today. That was all for free, by the way. That was just so random. I, I apologize for that. What is the purpose of the purpose? Well, let's look as we close today. Number one, influence. Believe it or not, the purpose of the purpose of the incarnation. Now, what was the purpose of the incarnation? Redemption, relationship, and your walk. Right? By the incarnation happening, it provides all three of those things. And, and so much more. But we're just going to speak in terms of those three things. Now let's talk about the purpose behind the purpose. And how do you actually say that? Why? Why? What's it look like? It looks like this. Christ redeemed you so that you and I would have influence. Where's Jesus Christ currently? Walking around us? Among us? No. His ministry is over. His ministry is done. His ministry is finished. But now through you. 2 Corinthians 5, 20-21. Paul says we now have this ministry as ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? He represents a, com a, a company, a country. And so you and I are to represent Christ. That's what He chose for you and I. We are to be people of influence for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is no longer walking here to influence the world for the cause of Christ. His incarnation came to set a demonstration and a pattern for that. You want to be a good ambassador? Watch, learn, walk as He walked, and you will be a what? You'll be an influence. I cannot be an influence unless I study how He walked. So there's the purpose of the incarnation. The result of that purpose, or the purpose to that purpose, is me being an influence to those around me. Number two, we are His righteousness. You know, when Christ was on earth, He was the righteousness of God made manifest. How is the world around you going to know the righteousness of God? God has instructed it so that He will shine through you and I. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21 is that passage I just mentioned about being an ambassador. At the end of it, it says that we are His righteousness. How do we influence those around us? We do so with God working through us. By the way, that's the pattern that the incarnation set forth, right? 
He came in his humanity. Have you ever wondered if you got to play that role and you got to choose to be God and set God aside or put on? Would there be times where you would play your God card? Right? I would. There would be those moments where I'd be like, oh, man, I'm going to put some of that. I'm going to infuse some of that God back in me because this is just getting hard. You know, the fascinating thing is that we see, and it's, it's our theme this year, out of, out of 2 Peter chapter 1, that it is through his divine power. And when you look at the nature of Christ when he was here on earth, he said that he always did things through his Father. That is a demonstration for you and I. That is an example for you and I. That the righteousness of God was revealed to men through Jesus Christ, even though he was here in human form. He had set aside his godly part. So what's that say to you and I? It says that I can draw upon that same power, 2 Peter chapter 1, and I can demonstrate righteousness to those around me. God can be visible through me. That is one of the purposes behind the purpose of the incarnation. Three, let me ask you, what influence are you for Christ? Because it matters. It matters. This season, as you walk around, as you are engaged with family and those around you and the world around you, what influence are you? How is God's righteousness being manifested through you? Now, if, that, if you struggle on that level, turn it around and ask yourself, who have you seen God through? Can you think of a name? Can you think of a person? Not to say that they're perfect. They're not. We know that we're not perfect. And that's not the standard, folks. It is God working through us and choosing to work through us. I don't know why he chooses to do it, but that's what he chose. So the question here is behind the purpose of the purpose, what influence are you for Christ? What is your effectiveness? Turn to Matthew 5. We'll close with this. What is the purpose behind the purpose? Well, the main purpose was the redemption of men. The main purpose was the relationship with men. The main purpose was this example so that we would know how to walk. Why do we need to know how to walk? Well, that's the why, right? That is the purpose behind the purpose of the incarnation. This is what we take away. This is me taking my logic scanner on my phone and taking a picture of that deposit. Why did I download that app and it took away memory from my phone? Why? Because I'm lazy. What's the purpose for me putting that app on my phone? I don't want to drive to the bank and stand in a line, right? That, now we're getting somewhere. That's the reality of it. So what's the reality of this? What's on the line? What matters? What is the purpose? Jesus' very words, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now for some of us, we know what that means. For some of us, we're like, salt, what are you talking about? He's using a metaphor that salt had a strong purpose, a very viable purpose in this society, society where refrigeration was gone. Salt was a what? It was a preservative. And it brought life. It preserved food for a long period of time so that you could eat it without it being rotten. Now once that saltiness was no longer good and the meat started to change, did you just let it sit there? 
No. What did you do? You threw it away. And Jesus is using the metaphor to say, you are salt. You have a purpose. I came to help you with that purpose. He goes on to talk about the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. There is purpose behind lighting a lamp. Sometimes I wonder, my kids use, you ever have this? I'm going to owe my kids so much money after this message. You know, we have a, a, one of those big flashlights, one of those 9-volt gigantic, not 9-volt, what are those, like 4,000 gigawatt, you know, things. And, uh, you know, it's the brick battery, and it goes in the flashlight. And so we use that to go out to the pool and, and, and you know, look for spiders or whatever. Ward off the possums in the backyard. And uh, sometimes, I'm just saying, sometimes, maybe it's mysterious people that enter our backyard and turn this flashlight on. And I will go in the middle of the day, and I will look, and the light is on, on that flashlight. And after my righteous anger subsides, I get the picture. I just happened to come upon that light. I never would have noticed it even being lit. It's sitting here in all this light, and it's sitting in the cabinet. Jesus says, why would you hide it versus go tell it on a mountain? Lastly, he says this, verse 14, you are, uh, I'm sorry, go down to um, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This morning, as we close, what's the purpose of the incarnation? Well, it's the redemption of men in a very unique way, in an uncommon way making the uncommon common to a certain extent. It's so that we might have relationship with God. It's so that we might know how to walk in that relationship. Because Jesus walked as a man, and he did it through the power of his Father. And he says, we have that same opportunity, that same power to draw upon, my friends, so that we can be light, so that the purpose behind the purpose is realized. There's purpose behind the incarnation. There is a purpose to the purpose. Let me encourage you, start applying the gift that was given to you through the child of Christ. I'm going to ask Mike Redlick to come up and pray over the offering this morning. And as we close our service today, I encourage you, find the purpose of the incarnation in your life. You've got to start there with just the purpose, right? Continue to work on that. But then as you do so, find the purpose behind the purpose. Because that's the motivation. That's the motivation. Mike, come on up. And then as Mike prays, the men are going to prepare to take the offering. And we're going to close with a song. Right after the uh, closing today, we'll give you about 15 minutes and again, next week for Christmas services, 9.30. And those who plan on bringing hordes of people um, by going and telling it on the mountain, come to the second service. And, and we'll pack this place out with individuals. And we will have a special segment 
for second service. Something very unique and something very special. We're very excited about it. And so uh, looking forward to that. And again, um, take mind of Christmas in the City, 5 o'clock next Saturday. Mike?